maximum yeah. overdrive. Am I sounding fine to you? Yeah, it's all good. Oh, it's, it's an important thing, really. Isn't it? Ah, there it is. You see something now? I love you. Yeah, for some reason. Why would my headset? Why would it just drop down to twenty from ninety? Why would oh, fuck, that? I forgot the arc star. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was too busy typing up notes for um the day the earth stood still. So. Oh. <laughs> Is that the remake or the original? Of course, it's a remake. <laughs> 2008 remake with Keanu Reeves. I I watched um, one of the films I'm going to talk about. Today. I watched Bad Company, and, and no, I'd have to say not that one or that one because it's about like <laughs> there's about six films called Bad Company. All obviously, I watched the one with Frank Langella and Lawrence Fishburne. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> not the one with Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. Although I might have to. Jesus, Clash of the Titans. That isn't it. I don't know. All right. Well, maybe just we won't mention the Arkansas. Yeah. Sorry. It's just. Well, I'm going to keep this in. I want people to know that for three months you have been. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Oh, I forgot it again. I forgot my notes that, that are completed when really you just can't get from. I don't even know who it was. Was it Meredith Burgess to Rocky or something? <laughs> it was. Um... I can't remember. It was in. Uh, it's at the start of the previous episode. So, oh, it uh, was uh, ready to Mark Dacascas. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, from my perspective, Rupert, um, I, I there's been no sponsorship this week. Although I, I am genuinely sipping champagne as we talk. Of course you are. Um, why wouldn't you so, be? Um, so because I'm just living off the royalties. But I tell this is I was out in Cardiff the other day. And I bumped into someone, and I think you will be extremely jealous when I tell you who it is. Go on. I bumped into and had a conversation with none other than Tony Howes. Who? Tony Howes. You. It didn't quite have the impact. You, you don't know who Tony Howes is? N- really, no. Um. You did. He was. How was is he anyway? He is the actor that was in the the sort of piracy adverts of the mid to late nineties on like VHS before it went. To <laughs> um. So Silly I was. Me. I was really excited to see him. Uh, so I was. You know. I was like Tony. Love your work. Is that? And I run a podcast uh, called. You know. Uh, the men who talk. We do a show specifically about movies called you know kino kingdom and you're a hero to me at least rupert doesn't know who you are but he said yeah no problem come around my house tomorrow which was yesterday and uh, he said yeah come around my house and we'll we'll um, we'll do like an interview and stuff and I, I was really excited as you can imagine so i got like a load of went through his career uh you know through, through imdb got a load of questions together a lot of paperwork and i knocked on his door and he opened it and he was <clears throat> he just sort of stared at me com- like with a completely blank expression and mm. I, I said, hey, Tony, it's Brit, we spoke. And he's like, I, I don't know who you are, mate. And I said, no, we spoke. We, yesterday, you, you told me to come over, and then we can, we can do an interview. And he said, I told you, did I? Oral contracts, not worth the paper they're printed on. And then he just slammed the door. <laughs> so I, I haven't got an interview with him. But so yeah, but yeah, it was, it was a, you know a brush a brush with fame as far as I'm concerned. Um, so it was all. Did you look up the name of that actor just to construct that joke? Joke. This... Uh, sorry, did did you look up the name of the actor to remind yourself of that true story? Yes, yes, I did. Sorry, okay. 
Um, genuinely, genuinely, I uh, would love to like email him and just see if I can get him to say something to do with Kino Kingdom, just so we can have it at the start of each podcast. That's I would, I would, amazing, yeah. wouldn't it? Amazing. Um, so, um, he, he's aged really well, by the way. He looks younger now than he did then. So, admittedly, he was done up to be like a really greasy Cockney market trader, but still. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, that and yeah, before I kick off, because you haven't got your Arkansas, because you haven't done it, because you're thick. I did manage to get my random film name generator working. It's a bit temperamental, as you know. So, yeah. if you're ready for just to see what, uh, what what she's got for us today. Oh, yeah, okay. Laughing backwards. Laughing backwards. Bloody hell. It's a weird what one. What does that sound like? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, you like actually like inversely laughing. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of how the, if I pick that up off the shelf, you know, in, in HMV. It, it's, I don't know. When I, laughing backwards, it, I can either imagine the, like a, a couple on the front, like a, like a, a white couple. Uh, like, and one of them's laughing so much that they're like falling backwards off the bench or something. Mm. Or if it's just would be like an older couple sort of staring forwards at the camera forlornly with an overcast sky behind them on a bench. And it, the film is sort of saying like laughing backwards as in sadness. And it would be a film that I, a drama that I'd watched mm. trying to work out the title for most of the runtime. I was wondering that whether it could be sort of the inverse of laughter, but I think perhaps what it could be is a time travel comedy laughing backwards. Cause then it, cause you know, they love oh. kind of pun into the title, but the twist would be that it would start off as a really madcap comedy and it would almost be like uh, irreversible where like uh, it's like a reverse structure. So it's like working backwards. Um, and by the end of the film, it's just really, all the laughter is taken out, all the humour is taken out, it just turns into a really, really depressing, miserable slog. Um, so well, uh, by the end, you just really... So you start off really joyful, and then by the end, you're just really miserable. And at the end... And laughing backwards. As, as it goes on, the, the sort of colour drains out of the images. <laughs> yeah. So it's by the end, you're watching a... And, the, and every now and then, people start speaking in, like, spatterings of Italian... And then by the end of it, you're just watching a monochrome Italian drama. Yeah, you're basically just watching an Antonioni movie from the 50s. <laughs> and and as the film goes on, like, yeah, as the colour starts to drain, but also the aspect ratio starts to shrink. So by the end, you feel really confined and claustrophobic. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the visuals deteriorate. So what starts off as a 4K laugh-a-thon with, like, da, 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 big brass music at the end, you're just watching people, like, l- looking at, like, a dead dog in a puddle as it's, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I'd, I'd watch that movie. Really um, draw people in on a Saturday night, just families and stuff, and they just turn into a really depressing like Tarkovsky and existential drama. You Good. talking, by the way, about um, uh, time travel comedies reminds me of, I've never seen the film, and, and nor do I want to. It was a film around the, the sort of late, I'm guessing early to mid 2000s, actually, starring mm. Jean Renault. And it's, he plays like a knight with some, like a, a what are they called? Like a, a sidekick sort of thing. And um, they, they get thrown into a portal into modern, what would have been modern days, like Los Angeles. 
mm-hmm. and these French night, and it looked it look dreadful. Uh, it looked awful. Yeah, I have vague memories From, of this. Yeah, um, but I remember only watching the trailer, and I, I put it to you that the trailer had the best joke that will be in the film, and I, it will stays with me. And it's them trying to escape from this sort of um, huge attack siege on this castle, and they go into the dungeon. And they see this portal to obviously another realm, what they think is another realm. And John Reno says to his sort of night psychic, look, you go, you go through first. It's best if you go through first. And the guy says, but what if I just die? And then he sort of claps his hand at his shoulder and says, then I will avenge you. And I thought, what? Ow. (laughs) Um, It always tickled me, but I bet that's the best joke. I'll have to watch it now. And I bet you that'll be the best joke in the film. Can you remember what it's called? It's got to be a pun title, surely. It's I was. It's not knights errant, but that's the laughing backwards. I, I don't know. Knight riding on the horse backwards. Um, yeah, I don't know. I keep on thinking about first night with Richard Gere for some yeah, reason, or perhaps night and day with Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Um, right then. So um, I've watched a fair few films this time. Um, I, but I'm happy. I've talked for a little while, so I'm more than happy for you to kick off. And also, welcome to Kingdom Kingdom 35, everywhere. And we sort of kicked off in media res. Um, mm. So, I'll, uh, yeah, do, do you want to go off first? Because um, I can have a sit in my beautiful chilled champagne then. Why are you drinking champagne just of interest? Uh, we kept it uh, for, obviously, our son's birth. Um, and we thought uh, yesterday would be the nice time to open it. And it's one of those occasional drinks for me. It's nice to have champagne, but I don't really enjoy it. So it was like we popped it open, had a glass, and said, "Right, put that in the fridge. And let it go flat, then bin it." Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just sort of finishing off today, just so it doesn't go to waste. I mean, what better cause for champagne than a Kino Kingdom podcast? Quite frankly, absolutely. Um, okay, so my bloody Valentine is my mm-hmm. first film, um, which is on Prime, obviously. Uh, this was made in 1981. Uh, Obviously, during the height of the slasher craze, it is a slasher. Has uh, there been a remake of this? Sorry to interrupt. Yes, there. Ah, oh, right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, which I haven't seen, but I. It was made when every horror film on earth was being remade in the late two thousands. So, yeah, um, I haven't seen it. Probably won't bother. Um, it. This is a <laughs> slasher set in a mining town. Yeah, um, and actually largely set in a mine. Uh, oh, okay. So. The backstory is that it's tragic disaster in the mine years ago left a single survivor who resorted to cannibalism to survive. So went a bit bonkers. Um, when he got out, he murdered the two supervisors who let the accident occur, basically. And he vowed that if the mining town um, held another Valentine's dance, then he will return and start killing again. Anyway... He's bonkers. So he's put in an asylum. He's forgotten about. 20 years later, they the town decides, oh, well, it's time to put the Valentine's dance back on, isn't it? So they do. Um, but will the killer return? Yes, he will. Um, It'd be so boring so, if he didn't. <laughs> they just have a good time. And then it's like, and they, just loads and loads of red herrings and nothing ever happens. No, it, uh, he does return. And kills people and he's wearing like a gas mask because it's like methane down in the mines so it's quite iconic i suppose as far as killers go um this is um an above average slasher movie uh for the time it's the the party scenes which obviously involve a lot of kind of teenagers who will 
most of whom look about 35, but they're not completely unconvincing as party scenes. Um, there are some good red herrings in this, like a good build up of tension and then like deflated. Um, but then there's also just good tension throughout. There's some pretty brutal kills. They're quite swift, but there's a little bit of variety in them, you know, death by pickaxe, death by nail gun. Um, someone stuffed in a tumble dryer. It's death by chocolate. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the performances are above average, I'd say. And there is a convincing sense of panic when the murders do start. And it does feel like the deaths have some traumatic influence on people. Um, well, w- which is good to an extent, although it does have the usual problem of 95% of the women in the film being just irritatingly hysterical. But anyway, um, it's quite atmospheric uh, with some decent lighting and a surprisingly subtle score. It's quite a, like a droney, almost elemental score. It isn't, it isn't just constant like shrieking strings and stuff. It's, it's pretty, pretty well done. The main problem with it really is the hero who's played by someone called Paul Kelman, who I'm not even sure is, I don't even know if he's an actor or not. He's one of those people where you look on Wikipedia and there's no blue line under his name. So, um, but he is a complete black hole of charisma. He's just no one. And and it's especially noticeable in this film because actually a lot of the people, everyone around him really is, is quite colorful. They're quite well sketched caricatures. So him being totally without any personality doesn't really help. Um, Anyway, but the editing is good for the most part, but it is jarringly obvious where gore has been cut out, um, like during kills and stuff. You know when someone's about to get sliced or whatever, and then suddenly it will sort of jump away to a different scene, and it's like, hmm, there was something there, wasn't there? Because I know that it was heavily cut. Um, Is there an unreleased version of it available? I think so, but I'm not... I don't know whether... I know that they had a lot of trouble finding the lost footage because it was originally cut heavily um, and it was restored at the same time as they remade the film. So they obviously re-released it like saying, oh, I'm a cut version or whatever. But it does still seem like there's frames missing, put it that way, which is a pity because it does seem a little bit tame now. But anyway, another problem with it is, is that, of course, the mind setting naturally means you cannot really see what's happening do you know i was when you said it was set in a mine i thought Mm -hmm. an early 80s horror set in a mine is going to be a dark yeah i mean they they, dark they do (laughs) they do do their best with the lighting and that but the other problem is of course that every corridor looks the same so so anyway yeah the final third is really the weakest which is a pity and the final fight Mm -hmm. itself is just nothing it's a total damn squib and and there isn't a weirdly, like, there's a weirdly obvious attempt to bait a sequel at the end, which I think is, I regard that as being more of a modern thing to just totally open it up for a sequel. Uh, I, I don't really, I don't really think of films from that period as doing that so much. They often have like a twist, and they always have like a stinger at the end, but. Having like it oh, so this really... isn't like a this isn't like a hand raising up from somewhere. This is literally opening up no, to a sequel. This is like literally just like a quite an inconclusive ending, really, which is unusual. And I'm not aware that they 
I don't know, maybe they did make a sequel. I've not heard of it, but yeah, but I thought that was interesting. So overall, it's a pretty solid slasher for the time. I would say uh, it's a, a cut below Friday the 13th and The wow. Burning. But I would call it second tier enjoyable trash. So <laughs> that's quite a nice phrase for it. <laughs> that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but like if you are a fan of slashes, then you could do a lot worse. A lot worse. So um yeah. <laughs> just you saying it's a really unsatisfying, inconclusive ending that ends suddenly just just have this this mental image of of like a load of kids down a mine and then the killer like pops out and one of them just goes, Oh shit and like pushes the guy and he goes Whoa, and falls a few feet through a table and lands awkwardly on the floor and then someone says is he dead and then the mingo goes oh, I, I don't know and then it ends <laughs> oh, okay well it wouldn't it's not a million miles away from that really <laughs> <laughs> to be honest that's that was that your description just then was more exciting than the final fight in this movie and Albert Pian directed it, you say. Um, I, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, it's a shit with because when you say, I know you watch a lot of these sort of like uh, trashy eighties horrors, and whenever you say it, especially from like the early period of the eighties or late seventies, I instantly have this mental image of like really nice, either smoky blue lighting or lots of neon, and in yeah. a mine all of that is taken away. So no matter how well lit it is, it's always just going to be like, yeah. you know, a, 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 my, a, ca- a cave and then a light. I don't know. It just seems. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, these films from this particular period, this very early period, they always look, I always just think of them as seventies more than anything. They look like seventies films, basically mm-hmm. like they haven't quite got to the, you know, the neon stage quite yet in like vamp and things like that. So this and Sleepaway Camp and Friday the 13th, they, they look and feel like 70s movies. I honestly thought Sleepaway Camp was was late 70s, but it's 80s. Uh, is it? Just about, yeah, 80s. <laughs> <or 80. laughs> nice. um, but I'm... it's not as good as Sleepaway Camp either. But that's the thing. You watch enough of these slightly obscure structures <clears throat> from the period and 90% of them are, are bad or average. But oh. then you get to... Yeah, and then you get the odd gem, like Sleep yeah. Um First one from me, I've got a few two-minuters, um, mainly because they're either ones that people, films people are really familiar with or that they're ones I watched from that period when uh, we skipped over a few a couple of weeks back. So um, just a quick two-minute. I watched Get Shorty, 1985 gangster comedy film. I know that this was... is quite well loved by a lot of people and i'm sure i've seen it before but i've got a feeling that i watched be cool which i really didn't like and i've mixed them up in my head so when i went back to watch this it's clearly just a much better film than the sequel which i don't think i'll ever watch again so this is um here really quickly it's just about uh, john travolta plays a a loan shark called chili palmer who gets sort of involved by going after someone to get the money back for a mob boss the Los Angeles movie production business and decides to become a producer because he's a huge fan of film. And the whole film is just him getting involved in that um, that world and meeting different people, like, as you said, caricatures of people uh, and trying to get this script going. And I, I quite liked it because 
it reminded me of what was that film I watched last week about someone I film production Cletus was, whatever his name is yes it was it because that was um, who is Cletus Tout had Tim Allen as a, as a hitman in it uh, who was constantly quoting movies and it was really grating from the get go but in this it happens probably more so but because the film is just of a better quality better paced and and everyone. It, is, it has much better comic timing. It just just works. It just kind of fits in. The and, and set in that world as well. Presumably. Yes. It's not just someone to just be, yeah. being smarmy all the time. Yeah, it's got John Travolta, Gene Hackman, Rene Russo, uh, Danny DeVito, and the hero of this film, Dennis Farina. I was weak at some of Dennis Farina's lines. There's a, 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 there's a bit at the start where he walks in to kill John Travolta because John Travolta's punched him in the nose. And John Travolta shoots, and I thought he shot him in the head, but he sort of sh- he's in the back of this laundrette where he runs his loan shark business. And Dennis Rina bursts in, and he instantly just gets shot in the head, but kind of grazes up the middle of his head at this parting. So it cuts his head, but doesn't kill him, and he grabs his forehead, runs back through the laundrette, just shouting, go on there, fucking one, one, go on there, fucking one, one. I was weak. I, the whole film, just, <laughs> he just every time he came on screen, I was almost laughing before he started talking. And I think I need to watch more. I know I went through a phase of watching a few films with Dennis Farina, but I need to get back into that. Um, especially now because I've been hogging Disney Plus this week and um, right. watching a few films on that. So, yeah, j- just, um, it is, it's a really good film. It's, it's really sticks to its guns. It's got some really nice performances in it. It's consistently funny throughout, and John Travolta is just a cool leather-jacketed smoking character, and of course, it's got Delroy Lindo in it. Good. That's always good. I always, I, I've never seen it because I, I just always avoided it purely because I just imagined it was another of these wannabe Tarantino-type films. No, it's too light-hearted for that. It's oh, right, okay. There's like a lot of language in it, but it's more just about. Um, and again, it, it's. I really like Gene Hackman and it's yes. because he's out of the business now. It's to see, as you know, I'm a big John Travolta fan. So to watch him in, in his, just in that Renaissance period oh, when yeah. you've got, um, you know, Gene Hackman, Delroy Lindo and, Oh, I always forget his name. The guy who was in, um, Oh, that mafia show that everyone loved. James Gandolfini. Uh, James, in this yeah. as well. Um, it's just like a, everyone who came on screen, it was, it was like a little, Oh yeah, you know, this is cool. And they would have a nice part to play. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I don't think it's. It, I don't think you you wouldn't enjoy it. Just don't watch Be Cool because that is a film you wouldn't enjoy because that's focused on the movie business. Uh, sorry, right. the music business, which is just yeah. far less interesting anyway. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine that. And, and it, Be Cool came quite a lot, uh, quite a long time afterwards, didn't it? T- Ten years, two thousand five. Yeah. Yeah, that was never going to work, was it? No. No. It's just this is just a good mid nineties like sort of comedy. I would say action comedy, but there's like three people fire guns in it <laughs> most of the time. Is it Dennis Farina? <laughs> I do love Dennis Farina. Is he still alive? No, sadly not. He died a few years ago. Mm. But uh, I am going to make his way my way through his filmography. Good. That means you, it gives you an excuse to watch Manhunter again. Good. <laughs> and you'll have to watch Goodfellas, of course. Mm-hmm. Ooh, so let's see, this could be as close as I get to mobster films. I'm, um, yeah. Well, I, if I you're going to watch one mobster film, then Goodfellas is probably the one. I was hovering over Casino um, for another film I watched mm. this, that I mentioned later on. I've been hovering around Casino, and I think that was 95 as well, thinking about it. I've watched Casino three times, but every time I've watched it, I've been impossibly drunk. I don't know why. It just happens to have 
been that it's way. It's because you're an alcoholic, Rupert. Oh, yeah. You're a functioning alcoholic, remember? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> remember. Oh, yeah, the last I'm 20 years of my life. <laughs> so drunk all the time, I forget that I'm an alcoholic. Um, yeah. And so I, I just remember, I just like have horrible images of extreme violence and that's it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Is that the drunkenness or the film? I, well, yeah, it's like not being able to quite piece the film together in my mind and just, but it has got some really extreme violence in it. So it's like those that stand out. Oh. Um, yeah, but I remember it being pretty good. But Goodfellas is, that's obviously got Dennis Freena in so. Fair enough. Then I watch. So you're only allowed to now. You're only allowed to watch films with Dennis Farina for the rest of your life. So quite limited, really, aren't you? <laughs> but I'd have a happy life. Yes. <laughs> um, did you have another two minutes? Did you say? Um, I can go. Th- to be honest, I can really quickly go through two or three, like super fast. I know that was more than two minutes oh, yeah. because these are ones I watched a while ago, and I, I just have vague memories of them. I watched a film called. I'm gonna have to quickly get up so I don't mess up the names. Um, a film called Run, starring Sarah Paulson. Uh-huh. Um, no, oh, what am I looking at now? Yeah, I, I, I can't Sarah even Paulson. find it. Uh, Sarah Paulson, and it's it's um, it was good. That's all I can remember. It was good. It was a ninety minute thriller, and it ended very quickly. Um, yeah. My internet has gone a bit bonky, so I can't even pull up information about it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, she get on uh, teletext. She plays uh, um, a mother of a of a, a daughter who's. Uh, in a wheelchair and needs a lot of a lot of care and we come to find out that possibly it is not as it seems to uh-huh. be and the whole film is it it's very much a, a trapped in a house with growing concerns about the young girl around here she tries to escape her situation and it's really good it feels like something that Sarah Paulson has we've seen a lot of from her it's almost like she's the go-to person for this for this um a uh, very neat, tight-lipped woman who sort of slowly unravels, uh, which is effectively what she's doing in that TV show at the moment. The one, the spinner from The Shining. I can't remember. Uh, what it's it the um, not The Shining. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. That one. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, that one. So it, it's it's very much for her. It's effectively just a by the numbers scene. But Kira Allen, who plays her daughter, is really good in it. And if it, it almost feels like a mid nineties thriller, to be honest, it's just that little high concept thing. She's you know her mother's a bit dicky and she wants to get away from her. A touch of misery about the proceedings, and um, it's a really brisk film. It says it's a hundred minutes here, but. I swear to God, I would have believed you if you said it was 75, which is good because it just sort of booms through it and then ends quite mm. nicely. The very ending sequence did not need to be there. There's a little two or three minute sequence at the end that I just thought oh, that would have just been a much better film if that wasn't there. But yeah, it's like a like an eight out of ten, I would say. Okay. That's tempting. And that's on She's always reliable. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I said I was going to do more, didn't I? I was just sort of sat here waiting for you. Um, and did, I, did I mention did I mention Stowaway last time? Um, with, no. With uh, let me just quickly get this. Sorry, I'm so unprepared. God, this yeah, is Stow- giving me horrible. Just the word Stowaways give me horrible flashbacks to that um, Gary Oldman film. Sorry. The, oh, I thought you were going to say buried with them. No, Gary. You know that Gary. What was that Gary Oldman film where it's on a boat with his family and. Oh my! Awful, awful. Yeah. Film. Wait, oh, it's yeah. Cool. 
I can't. I cannot remember that. It was dreadful. It's, it's got a really bland title anyway, and it was the one where the start, quite near the start, like there's like sort of like this weird alien creature jumps out on them, and then it's just not mentioned at all for the rest of the film, and it's just a really dull, like generic family thriller on a boat. It, it, I swear that he, Gary Oldman did that film because the director has got a picture of him with his bum out, and he said, <laughs> "I'll send it off to the National Enquirer." And he said, "Okay, I'll be in your film, but can I can I not put any effort in?" Yeah, that's fine, absolutely fine. And can the script be dreadful and, and it not make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course, done, done, Gary, done. Brilliant, brilliant. All of, all of your demands are met already. Um, yes, yeah, so Stowaway. It's a film that's uh, on Netflix. Came out this year, starring Anna Kendrick, Daniel Day Kim, whom I fancy, and Tony Collette. And it's it, it's a film that sort of just kicks off with the shuttle launching into space, and this small crew of three are off to Mars to. Uh, just do they're all sort of doctors and uh what are they called botanists and so on so they're off to mars to do some stuff and they realize that there is a stowaway on the as as the title suggests on on the Mm -hmm. shuttle michael adams and it begins to cause a lot of problems in terms of their supplies the oxygen the damage a dude just stows away it, 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 it's not like he hides in a fruit crate and they find and they find him because the box is giggling Rupert it's not quite like that <laughs> are you in there Michael Adams <laughs> no it's not quite that um, there is it does sort of it does make sense I don't want to talk about the plot too much because I thought this was going to be a thriller I thought it was going to be a sort of um, uh, what's that film that I really like with Ben Foster and Dennis Quaid begins with a P <laughs> Anyway, I thought it was going to be like a spacey horror thriller, but it's, it's actually not. It's more of a character study. And Pandorum more a, is the film you're Pandorum thinking. is the one I really like, yeah. It's more about a, a, a study of um, uh, human morality and um, endurance and how far people will go for others. Uh, and I, I really liked it. The one... But like Tony Collette has has some serious quandaries in this film, and she's cool in it. Daniel Day came, I just did him, and just I kept on shouting my phone number at the screen, hoping he'd ring me and kiss me, but he didn't. Um, I, but I really struggled. I really struggled to believe Anna Kendrick as a doctor in space. I, mm. I, just, I just and because she perennially looks like a twelve-year-old girl. Yes, and I, I think that she was. Where is? Whereas Daniel Day Kim and Tony Collette have character arcs, and they have, she's just this sort of little do-gooder, and it seems quite wonderful because there's only four people in the film. There's a really nice touch in it where whenever anyone talks to anyone back on Earth, we never hear that side of the conversation, so you get an absolute sense of their isolation, which I thought was a nice touch. We never leave the spacecraft, so it's quite claustrophobic, and it is quite a small thing. But I just couldn't believe Anna Kendrick, and so as the film. Works out the way it does, and some of the some of the the dialogue. I just thought, oh, I don't know, I, I can't quite. And I, and because of that, the ending of the film didn't have the impact that I think it's supposed to have. I will say though that I I enjoyed it, but I wasn't as hips deep as I I wish I was. Yeah, it's a problem in it when you've got a very small cast. Then there's a lot riding on every actor, isn't there? Really, because if you've got four characters. If one of the actors isn't up to snuff, then that's twenty five percent of the movie, basically, isn't it? Also, a quarter as well. Just uh, oh, yes, or indeed, zero point two five. So yeah, I'll stop for a bit now. But yeah, I just wanted to get those out of the way because they've been on my list for about a month. Right. Um, okay. Well, I can talk a bit about Chain Reaction, 
Um, I almost watched this. <laughs> I can tell you've been flicking through Disney Plus on the Star <laughs> Channel. Um, yeah, so uh, this was this is a film that was made in 1996 by Andrew Davis. This so obviously after he'd done Under Siege and The Fugitive, um, he's like a bit of a journeyman director. Andrew Davis. This is. It's quite similar in plot and tone to The Fugitive, kind of. So Keanu Reeves is a machinist and Rachel Weiss is a scientist and they're working at uh, this experimental facility um, doing experiments with fusion tech um, to create just clean energy, basically. And, well, for a start, apparently the science is just fundamentally wrong in this film. Because apparently fusion doesn't use chain reactions. That's that's fission. It's a different type of energy creation. But anyway, so anyway, so one night some naughty boys come along, kill some scientists, and blow up the facilities. Uh, blow up the facility. Um, and Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weisz are framed. Fred Ward is the FBI agent investigating. Obviously, Morgan Freeman is. He's the kind of leader of this scientific operation, uh, and it appears that he is helping them, helping Keanu and Rachel get away. But it's it's clear that Morgan Freeman is a bit of a sausage, um, especially when he meets up with Brian Cox. You know something's wrong. Um, so basically, the second that Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weisz discover they're being, they might be being framed, they instantly go on the run. Rather than trying to explain their innocence or anything, they run away and it becomes a chase movie and there's big chase set pieces um, intercut with FBI agents and evil corporate overlords explaining the conspiracy to each other. Um, It's a really overcomplicated plot with this thin veneer of science. But what it comes down to is a basic action-adventure movie with a damsel in distress at the end. Rachel Weisz really does nothing proactive in this film at all. Her character does nothing. And and she's bad in this movie, which is surprising because she's good, but she is bad here. She's really wooden. And, of course, the problem is you pair her up with Keanu Reeves, who's always a bit flat anyway. So as a double act, it just doesn't work at all. (laughs) It has one of my pet hates in it, which is characters running in pairs in films holding hands running away from danger holding hands uh, it's something you shouldn't do and it's something you wouldn't do and they do it anyway constantly it's really annoying but that's the i mean there are more ridiculous things in the film than that anyway like there's a scene where keanu outruns a hydrogen explosion on a motorbike for example um like he evades dozens of police they're surrounding him when he's on this bridge and like uh and he climbs down and just gets away from everything load of police fbi agents all coming at him just evades them um and there's one bit where he where he and rachel wise they emerge from a freezing river right in the middle of absolutely nowhere like i don't know just in the middle of the countryside and they just stumble upon a completely empty house with food and hot water and just no one home. So they're just like, all right, that was lucky, wasn't it? So mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves just does what he wants in this film. He, he'll just, um, 
he'll just go and goes and steals a coast guard boat and just starts driving it he at one point he hops in a police car when the police had just popped out just and quickly uses their computer and then gets out again he he wanders into like a science facility just with a hard hat pretends to work there no one stops him he's fine it's ridiculous it's just constant he just does whatever he wants at any time um (laughs) there are really tedious endless arguments between morgan freeman and brian cox which is a pity because they're both good actors, but my God, their scene's dull. Um, and the whole thing about Morgan Freeman, who's meant to be, he's sort of meant to be a bad guy. It's, it's over 20 years old, so I can reveal that he is a bad guy. But but it, it's clear that he's meant to be not a really bad guy, just a misguided guy. And at one point, right, he's talking about like scientific um, <laughs> endeavor and how, the point he's trying to make is that there are sacrifices when you're when you've got science, you know, when you're on the cutting edge of science. And all right, bear in mind that this experiment that went wrong and um, blew up right in this explosion, it it flattened eight city blocks around it, right? So oh, hundreds, okay. possibly thousands, killed, right? <clears throat> mm. And he compares this. He says, "Oh well, you know." When they were doing the Apollo program, sending men to the moon, ten astronauts died during that. It's like, mm. and and then someone like one of the people at the committee says, "Oh, that's a really good point. You're an amazing patriot." And and it's like, well, hang about that was a really rubbish point. That didn't make sense at all. Like that's a completely different thing. Like, they were really willing. You know, they were willing <laughs> participants in this scientific experiment. They weren't just innocent people just raised instantly by a hydrogen explosion. Anyway. <laughs> And then he gets a final speech, which I think... Entire families as well. Hundreds of entire families wiped out as they make angel delight. (laughs) I think his final speech is genuinely meant to be persuasive as well, because his idea is, his whole reason for being a bit of a sausage is he doesn't want clean energy to to emerge too quickly, or it will, if you flood the market with clean energy, it will create a stock market crash and make a worse problem for the world, which just... To me, that just sounds like energy company propaganda. That's like the equivalent of like cigarette companies saying it doesn't cause cancer and stuff. It's like they just don't want to lose money. So I don't think they'd try that excuse today in our era of climate catastrophes. So that seems particularly empty, that one. There is a cameo by a very young Michael Shannon, I noticed, which I thought no, was no. a bit odd. Just, I just always assumed that Michael Shannon just always been middle-aged. He just... He looks weird when he's young. It's like he he looks really gaunt and skinny and it doesn't look right. Obviously, he's still gaunt and skinny, to be fair. But, you know, um, yeah. So anyway, it's a tremendously average film, Chain Reaction. Like, (laughs) it's not even like 90s thriller fun, then. It's just Um, I think it's just a bit too silly because I suppose it's it's almost like with the fugitive or something like that what was good about that is that it was very grounded you know it was like the stuff which happened was basically plausible and it was almost like when there was a moment of tension when he was almost caught sort of thing it'd be a question of like oh they're just outside we're gonna have to go out the back door or whatever and that would be the excitement but here because they've ramped it up and it's obviously in response to the newfangled, you know, CGI. And, and, and I suppose you'd have stuff like Independence Day. And they, no, it, yeah. triggered, it triggered this whole wave of 
much bigger scale kind of action movies in its court kind of caught between old-fashioned um chase movie style chase drama and big scale flashy action and throwing it, in set pieces do you mm-hmm. think it would have been if it was made two or three years earlier you, before well even like one year earlier do you think it would have benefited from just them not thinking oh we need huge explosions because that's now what audiences expect possibly yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure it just it, it maybe yeah but it's just it's too silly and too dumb um and the kind of messaging that comes out of the characters mouths is too banal um to really be in any way persuasive and, and mm-hmm. having keanu reeves and rachel vise together not acting very well really doesn't help <laughs> carry the film at all like consider the fact that harrison ford was basically on his own in the fugitive and that was more interesting looking at his face than it is watching these two people interact that's not a good sign if, if, uh, when you say Rachel Weisz not acting very well, it reminds me of that film she was in with Daniel uh, Craig. And what was that met. film? Yeah, where they met. And, Dreamhouse. Um, Dreamhouse. And that is the film that's so bad that, and no one is paying any attention to the point that Daniel Craig's character mispronounces, or rather pronounces his own surname in multiple different ways. In it. Um, and I thought, because well, I was trying to work it out, because there's like a his surname, like, and it's A T E N T O N. So like Attenton, and he says Attenton, and he says it like two or three different ways. And I thought, you're not wow, what? what? And it, and it, the thing, the reason it stood out for me so much is because it, it, it's a plot point, and it's a really bad plot point that is basically sums up the quality of the whole film. It's dreadful uh, that film, really bad. Um, it was a frown. Oh, your films you watch with just a slight frown, thinking, God, this this is surprisingly bad. And I was shocked by the quality of it as I was watching it. Um, mm. I watched a film called Takers, <clears throat> which is um, uh, from 2010. And I've got to say that uh, this is a film that I didn't watch because from the poster, I don't know if you want to look at the poster of Takers now on Wikipedia. I just assumed it was a gangster yeah. film um, uh, with the colouring and Hayden Christensen's hat. Um, so I just thought, oh, it's just some gangster thing. I'm not going to bother watching that. But it turns out it's actually a heist film, and Matt Dillon is in it. And Matt Dillon is a massive Dinosaur Jr. fan, so I will watch anything he's in. And um, this is it kicks it off. It really with does a high... look like a gangster film. It really does. Movie, yeah. So I didn't watch it for a decade because of that. And now that I've watched it, <laughs> could I put off another decade possibly? Um, it's a heist film, and they. Uh, uh, it stars Matt, Dill- uh, Matt Dillon as the cop after him. You've got Paul Walker, Idris Elba, Jay Hernandez, Michael Ely, Chris Brown, and Hayden Christensen. There's this gang of um, real top-end thieves, effectively, that steal millions of dollars and drive around on awesome motorbikes and cars. And it's all very flashy, very a lot of um, sort of beat-driven music, you know, to make you understand how cool and flashy everything is. And they all drink in penthouse bars and stuff. Um, the plot is that one of the one of the members who's been in prison for a while, Ti, uh, has come out and he says, oh, "While I've been in prison, I've got this um, huge heist together. It's going to be like hundreds of millions of dollars, enough to sort of retire on. And you just need—they don't trust him. He says you just need to trust me. And then the whole plot unfolds from there. It's it's very silly from the start. Not only because their plans are always just ridiculous, but 
it's the way that it's the film is presented to us is that Idris Elba is a, you know, runs this gang of thieves and they he they're all like hyper intelligent completely on the ball and amazing at what they do and it's um from what we see at the start and like the, the level and, and intricacy of the planning the moment the ti says i've got this idea and then it's really really evasive about where he's got all this information from and um you know and when things start to get a bit sort of backed up and he and things don't go as planned and he's just really vague about why they're not going well and he's in debt to this russians that he just doesn't really mention and they find out about you think you they would have just stopped this so don't make me think that this is going to be a real hyper well plotted um heist movie when they're obviously just going along with this really ramshackle plan that's clearly falling (laughs) apart as it goes on um and when they would just shoot him in the head and leave him to it uh, also, I noticed that it's there's a thing at the start where the, obviously we see the police headquarters and, and Matt Dillon is going through each character in the plot and what part they play in this gang so we can understand their characters really quickly. And he says, oh, um, you know, uh, Idris Elba's, you know, he's the brains, T.I. is the planner. And then he says Paul Walker's the muscle. And he very specifically isn't in a fight for the entire thing. The only person mm. that's in a fight is Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen, always oh, about as much as one of my legs, takes out like five or six gun-toting Russians in a cabin. Mm. Uh, and I thought, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that would happen, to be honest. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really bizarre bit of casting. Um, Paul Walker isn't exactly, you know, built like Dave Bautista either, is he? No, but he probably weighs as much as my torso, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's there's some nice set pieces in there, and you know the the way it cuts back to um, Matt Dillon, Matt quite frankly Matt Dillon and his his partner I think is played by is it Jay Hernandez yeah his partner played by Jay Hernandez they're much more interesting than this gang because the gang are just a bunch of whiskey sipping flashy dressed kind of slightly tossery people who just would irritate me in real life because they're really smug and quippy mm-hmm. and they're actually men doing their jobs having like trouble with their home lives and stuff and that side is far more interesting but the film is obviously yes. focused on the flash um and yeah it i, I, I like the ending and it was an okay watch but you sort of have to switch your brain off it's not it's not as clever as it thinks it is is it worth waiting 10 years to watch 10 years um <laughs> Last no. ten years have been building up to this moment. Mm. I think if we were enough, if we were doing this podcast episode specifically about heist films, and we were talking about our favorite heist films, and then you you mentioned, oh, what about Takers? I would just say, oh, yeah, I've seen that, and that would be the end of that. <laughs> that would be the extent of your commentary on that film was just would be just explaining that you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that sounds average. That does. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. Uh, it wasn't a trouser remover. My trousers remained firmly buckled at all times, even when Idris Elba was on screen. <laughs> Do you say is it Idris Elba? Is he putting on an accent in it? No, no, he's um, putting on his. Um, it's just a normal British accent. All right, he's a handsome man. He yeah. is. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let me. What 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 channel is that on? Channel. <laughs> channel. It's on S4C, Rupert. <laughs> uh, caught a quick Kellogg start advert. Um, it was on Amazon Prime. Good. Okay. Um, well, I'm sticking with Disney Plus for now. 
Disney Plus brackets star because clearly I go straight to the star thing because that's for all the midnight. Have I got star then? Well, if you got Disney Plus, it's just one of the options. Oh right, yeah, okay. It it is basically the sort of home video arm of 20th Century Fox, really, because obviously they bought that. So yeah, um, and okay, let's talk about Jennifer's body, which I've never seen. This is uh, from 2009, I think. Um, It's a horror film, so-called feminist horror film. So Amanda Seyfried, she's recounting a story from a mental asylum and she's uh, remembering high school and specifically Jennifer, who is played by Megan Fox. And so Jennifer was a hot cheerleader and... uh, Amanda Seyfried's character was her geeky friend. I'd say geeky. She just had a pair of glasses. That was it, really. And uh, like, and ties and, her hair back. Yeah, that's literally it. And she's got this nickname, Needy, because she's just so needy. Like she needs this friend. Anyway, so this this small town is called Devil's Kettle. Um, and after a, that would smell, by the way. <laughs> Cup of tea. Oh, no, I'm all right, Dev. Right, thanks. I'll just pop down Starbucks. Um, so after a fire at a local bar, this big fire which burns everyone, including poor old Chris Pratt, who's in it for about two minutes. Not quite buff yet, but almost buff. Um, so anyway, so this is fire, and Jen and as they emerge, Jennifer goes off with this um with the band. Uh, you know she's dazed confused and she goes off with this band in this van and she returns from whatever ordeal she's gone through um as this evil succubus who slays teenage boys with a big toothy mouth um whilst at the same time her friend amanda seafried needy she's getting these horrifying visions of jennifer and her victims so um it's basically, yeah, kind of like th- about their relationship with each other. Um, when Amanda Seyfried suspects that she, Jennifer, may be the woman who's going around killing all the students around her. It's not what what I didn't really understand about this. It's not really clear why Amanda Seyfried is really into uh, Megan Fox, even before the change because she's Jennifer is just a self-absorbed twat from the very start. Like it's never clear why she has this infatuation because it's not like Amanda Seyfried's character isn't pretty and popular because she is. So she's not just a desperate, someone desperately looking for like approval or whatever. And also it's not like Megan Fox is especially pretty or especially popular. So there isn't really much between them. So it doesn't quite make sense why she'd be so obsessed with her. Anyway, she is, she is pretty, isn't she, Megan Fox? Though, yes, but not. It's not like so dazzlingly more pretty than Amanda. Oh, Seyfried, right, okay. You see what I mean? I mean I'm, I'm and also you. in the film, neither of them are really. It's not like Amanda Seyfried's made like to look frumpy or anything. She's still clearly really hot and also very popular. So it doesn't really make sense um, for me, anyway. Um. It's very much of its time because it's 2009, so you've got a lot of pop rock music. It's references to MySpace in there, goodness me. Um, <sighs> uh, 
like and the like the kind of bands they refer to things like maroon five um bloody hell she even does paranormal research in a library with real books which is surprising really when you think about what a it loser. yeah the script is by diablo cody diablo cody who also wrote juno and it's quite idiosyncratic use of language so there'll be phrases like uh, you're freak tarded and people will add like dot org to something they're saying um or and they'll use they'll say things like oh, oh you watched hackers okay <laughs> um and they'll say, oh, I've got a wetty or you've just got a tragedy boner and things like that and all this kind of stuff. And there's loads of pop culture references. So it feels it feels very much of a place in time. Um, it, but that's all fine. I, I can I can deal with that. But what I found really annoying about it was a, this slightly aggravating, edgy, insincere tone about it. Like there's this really bad balance between the horror and the comedy like where it doesn't feel satirical. It just feels that people aren't taking grief seriously. So like there's always a punchline coming up whenever there's like a death or whatever, like there's no, there's no impact to it because you know that there's going to be a joke just coming up and it's not, they're not, it's not satirical humor. It's just edgy kind of don't, don't care kind of humor. You know what I mean? And that's annoying at the best of times, but especially in a horror film where this has the effect of reducing the tension, because you know that the impact of any death that's coming up is just going to be undermined in a second, and it's not going to have any impact because there's going to be a joke behind it. And in when there's a death of one particular character near the end, which just falls completely flat as a result. So, mm. um, but at the same time, it's also not scary. It's just really schlocky. It is regarded as a, a sort of feminist cult classic now. And I can understand that in terms of it being like a spectacular revenge fantasy against horrible men, that makes sense. But there is one, one example of revenge that occurs in the film that requires such an enormous shift in character for the guy. It means it doesn't ring true at all. Like it, it he hasn't been like that the whole film. And then suddenly he does something which is totally out of character. And it's like, well, he was he was a decent guy and you just decided to turn him into um, another male monster. And it, it that didn't work at all. It I think it's trying to be a sort of heathers for the noughties. But that film was a lot more complex and a lot more convincing with regard to the interpersonal relationships in the film so um yeah i didn't think this was very good to be honest uh, i got it i actually i remember watching this i think i missed the first 15 minutes and i sat down yeah. and i think Faye watched it a good few years ago so my memories are hazy but i remember watching it um i remember reading about it beforehand and it, like you say if i it, it going in with the assumption that it was going to be um it had something to say effectively. And then when I watched it, I remember, I specifically remember turning to Faye saying, um, why is Amanda Seyfried like so infatuated with this girl? Why is she getting so involved? And I remember saying, oh, I don't know really. So you saying that just reminded me. And yeah, I remember watching the rest of it. Like I said, I missed the first few minutes and just thinking it was like a fine, shiny, 
yeah, yes, it feels two thousands yeah. horror, but yeah. like so it wasn't it wasn't scary, and and I, and I I came away from it just thinking I'm never gonna really remember this or, or feel the need to watch it again, and I haven't. Yeah, I well the bit you missed wouldn't have cleared up anything for you because um, <clears throat> Megan Fox's character is a a real dick from the start, and she even after the event that turns her into the succubus, she's not she's not really that different. I think it would have worked better if she'd been like a, a, Amanda a decent Seyfried's person character? to begin with. Yeah, well, like if they'd if they'd had this, if we established this genuine friendship between them, and then she changed completely, um, and it's like Amanda Seyfried was, it would be understandable then. Amanda Seyfried's desperation for, to like retain their friendship because she'd be like, okay, I don't know what's happened to you, but I want to help you or whatever, but. It isn't like that, and there was no reason for her to be friends with her in the first place. Um, so when she does start being even more of a dick, she just drop her, you know. There's really no reason for that infatuation at all. What did you say to the screen at any point when you're watching it? Drop her like a bad penny, Miss Seafried. I did actually, those exact words, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? In that tone of voice as well. <laughs> yes. Um, I watched uh, a film that I literally have never knew existed, starring Denzel Washington called Out of Time from 2003. Is this a film that you're familiar with? <laughs> it's on Disney Plus, obviously. Um, Bracket star. Direct- <laughs> um, this is directed by Carl Franklin. Again, someone I don't think I'm familiar with. And it stars Denzel he did as. Devil in the Blue Dress, I think. Oh, well, it's I'll funny you say. No, no, you're right. Um, the two had previously worked together for the 1990 film film Devil in a Blue Dress. So you are right. Is that good? Should I watch that as well? Because I like Denzel Washington. Ah, it's been a long, long time since I saw it. I remember it being a pretty cool noirish kind of movie. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, so this is set in Miami, uh, like really, really colourful uh, early 2000s film. And Denzel Washington plays Matt Whitlock, who is a chief of police in a small town called Banyan Key. And he is recently separated from his wife, played by Eva Mendez, who was de- just made detective. And he is having an affair with a woman called Anne, who tells him that she's got cancer and she needs all this money to uh, go travel somewhere, I think in Europe, and get, get this special treatment done. And he's completely in love with her. So he takes a load of money out of the evidence locker, naughty, uh, with the understanding that when her insurance pays out a few days later, that he'll just replace it. And he gives it to her. And then her and her husband, Dean Kane, of all people, uh, perish in a fire. And then he finds out that, did she really have cancer? And is the situation truly as it seems? No, it's it's not. It's not. It's yeah, right. Okay. Um, uh, it's uh, it's where it kicks off, and Denzel. Loves, uh, it's it's a film, basically. It's it's a it's quite cool because he is obviously emotionally completely invested in this woman, and he is like mm. genuinely heartbroken that she's died. At the same time, at the back of his head, he's like, "Shit, I've got to put like half a million dollars that is gone and burned up supposedly back into this evidence locker by tomorrow when the FBI are coming to pick it up." And my ex-wife is head investigator on the case. So he's trying to sort of cover his own tracks and involvement with this woman in real time with investigation over the space for a few hours as he's trying to also surreptitiously get to the bottom of what's happening. So it's it's such a tense film, but it's tense in like a really fun way. 
Like there's mm. a bit where she, there's someone's he picks up the he's listening on a call in his own office to Eva Mendez on the phone, senior, and it's like a fax that will literally put him at the center of everything and get him arrested on the spot. And they're like, "I'm just send the fax through," and he's like, "Ah," and trying to like just like get the fax before she does and like edit it and send it back and get the other person to not send another copy through. And it's like really fidgety. Um, and the whole film is like that. Like he'll be carrying a briefcase and bump into someone on the stairwell. And they say, you know, what's in the briefcase? And he'll have to really quickly think on his feet to just get out of these situ- these ridiculous situations. I say ridiculous situations. I-, I take that back because what I really liked about the film is it felt very realistic in the world mm. it was in, in this kind of very brightly lit sort of um, slightly winky world where it's not about fast talking and like massive Im- improbability. It's about him just thinking on his feet and you actually thinking fair play. That was quite clever Denzel. Cause I would not have thought to do that. My boy. Um, and I was quite hips deep in it. I've got to be fair. It felt like a good, a good snappy thriller. Um, and I also liked that Denzel Washington has got a friend called Che in it. Um, who is the sort of medical examiner who's just a bit of a schlubby, messy head glasses, sporting chain smoker who just is there. You think he's there to kind of just be the butt of some jokes and they have a bit of banter, but he actually plays a really major plot and their, their relationship is sort of fun. Um, mm. And, and I, I did like that sort of buddy aspect of it. And it's a film I clearly will watch again. Um, I w- it, It's because you've got Denzel in it at the heart of it. It sort of makes everything ring true a little bit, uh, whereas it could have been a bit too winky. And I think the fact that right. it's quite t- tightly plotted and almost in real time, and it is just about him thinking on his feet and panicking through these like really tense situations, and it never gets dark um, or full on. It's always quite breezy. It just feels like a, a film that I am glad I watched 18 years down the line. So that's <laughs> out, out of time with Denzel Washington on Disney Plus slash Star. Yeah, that sounds like quite almost a departure for Denzel because he is quite an intense actor, isn't he? Let's face it. And that would have been the time when he made just after training day, I suppose. So. Mm. <clears throat> Which yeah. I also need to rewatch. Yeah. So- it's a good film. <laughs> all <laughs> That's right. all I'm going to say about that. Um, that sounds intriguing. I'm surprised. Well, why have we never heard of it then? I don't know. I don't know. Because the cover is pretty dreadful and it makes it look like it's a sort of romantic like comedy thing. Right. But, um, but it sounds like it, bad marketing then. Yeah. I, I think if, if I would have seen this and thought, oh, it's just him in Miami in love with two women and he's just keeping one from the other, but it's not that at all. Right. It's just a really, really good thriller. That's intriguing. Out of time. Yeah. Not Nick of time. then. <laughs> Actually, that's true. The chances of two thirds of the title, um, that's uh, 66.6%. have the same words, don't they? Of, of time. Mm. But one is and... out. One is Nick. Um, Yes, uh, and also it's a hundred percent chance that we're going to mention Nick of Time in every episode. So there you go. It's done um, now. Uh, this film, though, just to differentiate them for, yeah. the, for the listeners, this film doesn't feature a sequence where, like, Denzel Washington like pulls down his trousers to have a wee, and Christopher Walken pops out of his fly. So that's <laughs> not in this film. <laughs> uh, Nick of Time. And I still have never seen it, but I'll, I think I, I feel like I've seen it because I've had so many scenes of it in it described by you. I remember <laughs> I had a, there was a VHS that came with Empire magazine back in mid nineties, and it had um, it had the latest trailers on there, 
And I remember they had some really cool trailers in there. They had one for Seven. They had one for like Michael Mann's Heat. And they had one for Nick of Time. Um, John Ma- John Badham's Nick of Time. <laughs> and uh, I, and it had naturally it had like a ticking clock going on in it. Oh. And it looked really trashy just from that. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah, I will watch it one day. Um, okay, so moving on. Um, let's move on. Well, let's move on to Heather's then. Because I mentioned that a minute ago. Yeah. Because this is a film that's always evaded me again. Right. Well, it it should evade you no longer. But it it, this because I mentioned it when we were talking about Jennifer's body. I I thought I have to watch this again because I remember liking it. This is on Prime at the moment, which is good. Naturally, I watch my special edition Blu-ray of it. But, you know, it's on Prime if you want to watch it. It's um, Winona Ryder. It's made in 1989. And Winona Ryder is part of a group of mean girls at, at high school, um, all of whom are called Heather except her. And this is a posh school, right? So, you know, there's money in these kids and they're extremely competitive with each other. And in this little clique or clique, as they call it, um, then when Ryder meets Christian Slater, who is a cool and moody outsider type. Um, and he they get on and he jokes about killing the main Heather of the group um, and then they actually do it and they dress it up as suicide um, and then they kill again and they dress it up as suicide and it kind of becomes an addiction and it gets out of hand um, and then well things things happen and uh, I'll, I'll leave you to watch it anyway it's just kind of a it's a black comedy I don't want to call it a horror, really. It's more of a thriller, but it's it's a black comedy more than anything. Um, and the, the reason it works really well as satire is because the girls are all posh kids. And so they're naturally competitive and they have so much pressure from their parents and they come with a whole bunch of privilege and expectation. And, you know, it's like after the first murder, for example, Winona Ryder, she's distraught, but she's also terrified of how it's going to affect her exam scores sort of thing. So it's it's a lot like something like American Psycho. It's that kind of thing where it's extremely privileged people literally getting away with murder. Um, I think if you put this plot and these actions into the hands of regular kids, then it would lose that satirical element almost certainly because – because then the kids would no longer be exceptional. They'd just be generalized as any kids sort of thing. It's a specific reason that these people are very competitive in this way. Um, and when Ona Ryder's motivation is believable because she's trying to extract herself from the competitive nature of a friendship group. So you can see the kind of parallels with American Psycho because it's like you get to a certain point in this hyper competitive world and the only option then there's nowhere beyond that except literally taking out the opposition sort of thing and there's many layers of satire in this film which is what makes it so clever and um because they obviously dress the murders up as suicides but what they don't realize is that each suicide actually increases the popularity of their victims sort of like as the all the students at the school kind of wallow in tragedy porn and it actually increases their status. And then there's a copycat effect. Um, so it's it's interesting how Winona Ryder's character feels worse 
when the suicides are occurring, when she has no control and better when she's in the murdering game, if you see what I mean. Um, and there's this teacher, Miss Fleming, who <laughs> she responds to the, the murders by bringing the kids together in a healing safe space in the school. And I think it's quite interesting how it kind of predicts the safe state of especially US campuses today. And especially when one kid wants like a copy, um, like a VHS copy of the healing session so he can use it in his application for Princeton because it would just increase his status yet further. Um, so there's all these layers of satire, which are really amusing. And yeah, so the reason that Winona Ryder gets addicted to the killing is because it reveals this insincerity in other people, the disingenuousness of their grief and it kind of shields her from her own sense of guilt because as soon as she sees people like having this performative grief afterwards, she realizes that actually none of this is real. This is all just performance and it makes her feel less bad about doing the murdering in the first place. Like if they're dishonest, how can, how, why should she be honest? If you see what I mean? Um, and, and her parents are completely unempathic because they're like after the first killing and they think it's a suicide they literally say to her, oh, what was your first day like after Heather's suicide? And it's like just a completely flat question. It's like, oh, yeah, it was all right. It's like constantly dialogue like that. It's really funny. Um, but yeah, the adults, they, they're kind of presented as very indifferent, but they're not presented as clueless. Like there's a good line where um, one of them says, like when, when teenagers complain about wanting to be treated as human beings, it's usually because they're being treated like human beings. So there's a bit of like, there's a, it's almost like a satire about the, just the performative nature of being a teenager at all. Like everything is so, so heightened. It's everything's so dramatic. Um, and in terms of the direction and that it's, uh, there's some really inventive character, uh, camera, camera work. Like you get fisheye lens, you get upside down cameras, spinning cameras, you get these dreamy tracking shots. It's, uh, there's this very unreal theatrical lighting and very specific use of use of like bold primary colors, um, kind of like a giallo movie. And that's quite deliberate. Apparently the writer, I think his name's Daniel Waters. He, who also wrote Batman Returns naturally, uh, he wanted, he wrote it for Stanley Kubrick which would have been really interesting now I come to think of it because I can imagine him really laughing up something like this, but alas, but it, it's, it's really well made. Um, and I, it touches on two of the most toxic subjects really around high schools, which is teen suicide and school murders. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure it would be made today. I, I'm pretty sure not in this style, but maybe it would. I think there is a musical of it. So perhaps it would, there is like a, th a theatre musical, so it obviously has it's had legs, uh, but it's an excellent film. Love it. Go to Daniel Waters' screenwriter page on Wikipedia, yeah, yeah. and look at his hair. <laughs> is I, what I'm seeing is a full head of hair, bushy on top. Short round the side. 
That's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is a coma where that is fooling nobody. <laughs> it's not, is it? Look at that. It's it's like it's just it's a comb over but just the front part like if you looked at him head on when he had his like tilting his head back you might believe that there was hair behind it but as soon as he's leaning down even at all you can just see he looks like he looks like he looks like josh whedon if josh whedon didn't give up on his hair um (laughs) speaking of hair one one last thing about heather's Christian Slater's here. I mean, in that film, how does it? How is it? Is it sort of neat, closely cropped? Um, maybe like a little neat side parting, or it's it's long and swept back and has <laughs> uh, <laughs> has unbelievable volume. Uh, yeah, some would say you should pump up the volume, but um, not me. <laughs> um, I got another two minutes. Uh, just I, just because I want to mention one thing, pretty much, and that's I watched Con Air again. Um, I, I can't. We, this actually kicked off a chat uh, in one of our WhatsApp groups, just about how on the on the post of Akane, you've got the names Cage, Kusak, and Malkovich, but the order of faces is Malkovich, Cage, Kusak, and you like obviously it's to do with, as we found out the uh, the contracts. But you just think, just just match them up, just come to some sort of yes. agreement that doesn't make you look it's, stupid. This has happened many times, and it's it's quite irritating and completely needless, because. I get if it's to do with the contracts and that, but then surely, given the fact that it's literally just a, a Photoshop poster and those those faces are interchangeable, then why would it, surely it would make sense to have the name over the face because if you want your name first, then you presumably want your face first as well, wouldn't you? Or is the point that you want your face in the middle but your name first? Is that is that where we're going with this? Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, you can imagine it saying, "Well, I'm I, okay. I, I'm Nicholas Cage. I want my name first. They're right. Okay, then. So we'll put you on the left. No, 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 no. no. I want my my picture in the middle, though. Oh, come on, Nick. Pay your taxes. It cannot um, be that. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was that. But you know, if you're gonna, presumably, the reason why you want your name at the left is because you read it first. But there can't. It can't be that nuanced that you read the word first on the left, but you always look at the middle face. That cannot be it. <laughs> Yeah, so you look at the name on the left, but you always look at the face in the middle and just assume they align. They show like, a little line because naturally arrow. everyone's gaze just goes da- diagonally downwards. <laughs> yeah, because your eyes get tired when you read, <laughs> and you have to like take a deep breath and like push your eyes back up in the middle, and then they drift off down again to John Cusack. Um, I, I this is really quickly, but I watched this film a lot as a teenager. I really I loved it as a teenager, and in a key thing. I thought it was very clever and cool, but now uh, the the dialogue is, is dreadful, absolutely dreadful. As as an adult man, I, I just see that every time, every time that um, John Malkovich opens his mouth, you just think, oh, "Whoops, a daisy." Um, also, it's just got re. It plays things like rape, sort of laughs, and. Mm. The thing that got me the most, and it's something I even as a kid I thought, mm, is in this film, Garland Green, played by Steve Buscemi's character, right, is a child murdering cannibal. Right, he is a child murdering cannibal that has killed over thirty people, and he says at one point to Nicolas Cage, "Oh, I, I one girl I like hacked apart and I put her head on my head and just drove around with her head on mine." And you think you're obviously like completely insane and you have no remorse. And there's a sequence towards the end of the film where he meets up with a girl 
a little girl that you think he's just going to murder and possibly consume in in uh, in like a what's it called like a trailer park mm. and she says um oh, are you okay you look sick and he says i am sick there's no cute there's no medicine for what i have and then we see him get back on the plane and we don't know what's happened but then we see her sort of wave him off but at the end of the film this is a spoiler but i don't care because it's over 20 years at the end of the film we see after everything the airplane wreckage blah blah, blah the music is really jaunty and we see him in a casino like rolling dice and getting a cocktail and like laughing and everyone's sort of surrounding him as if oh, he's got a new lease on life now. Like that one conversation mm. with the girl has made him realize they're of his ways. And you think he's eating kids, isn't he? He's murdered and eaten entire families. So I don't care if he's just he's had a quick chat with someone in a dry swimming pool and he's throwing some dice about and smiling. That I haven't forgotten that. I haven't forgotten what he's done. So it's a really bizarre, like nasty ending to 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 the film. And it's I find it really jarring. And even now I think what, what are we are we supposed to just think, oh look, he's rehabilitated. That's nice. He didn't he didn't like smash someone's window when he was pissed. He ate families. <laughs> so yeah, I just find it a really jarring end sequence. And the names are out of order on the front. <laughs> worst of all worst of yeah worst I, of all. I i it's been a, a long time since i watched con Air, but i do remember finding it super semi's whole thing very jarring yes because <laughs> um, it, it, it seems to be touching on themes which just have no real place in that film in film that of that sort somehow yeah it's it, bizarre yeah. so um yeah it's funny it, it if it didn't have that, would it be good? Would it be enjoyable? Or? It's hugely jarring to the point that when I was watching it, I thought I, I was waiting for the sequence. And when you see him in the film, it's 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 everything else is sort of played for last, but that is really played for you know a big payoff at the end, and it's bizarre. It's a bizarre inclusion. Um, it's fu- it's fun. There's like lots of good set pieces, and it's it's you know a hell of a cast for the for the nineties, and it's quite fast paced and action driven but yeah that end sequence is bizarre it is yeah that feels tainted it's a tainted movie and also um nicholas cage is here he right he goes into prison for defending himself and his wife against like a load of drunks and one of them pulls out a knife so he he accidentally kills one of them when and he has a crew cut the second it cuts to him, even going to prison for the eight years he's there, he's got a touch of a mullet going on. And he, at the end of the film, he has gone to the point of make, not making his daughter visit him, visit him, sorry, a bit my tongue then, for the eight years he's been incarcerated. And he's written letters and he's really excited to see him. And he's got a little toy and he's like really excited. But he doesn't have his haircut, does he? And they've obviously got barbers in prison. So you think, what, why have you got this ridiculous hillbilly mullet? Why not just, even if he just like held it back and cut it with a pair of scissors, it'd be better than what's in the film. Yeah. So, I yeah. did it during lockdown. Why can't I he? I didn't. No. I don't think I've cut my hair. It's like about 10, 15 years. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's... um. It just it's it's fun, but it's very tainted by that last reel. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, how many more have you got left? I think I've got two more. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> eight left. <laughs> Bloody hell. Um. Okay. Any more? Uh, you got another two minutes, or maybe you could just slot in there. Uh. Yes, I think I, I can actually think I can really quickly do a few. Um, I'll do a turbo round. Um, I watched Bad Company with Lawrence Fishburne and Alan Barkin. And it, it's a, it, this is a film from 1995. And 
I, I've been into sort of corporate espionage stuff recently. Um, so I watched this and it's just, it's about um, uh, Lawrence Fishman's character it was kicked out of the CIA for paying off, well, he was supposed to pay off some general with $50,000 worth of gold. The general said he didn't get it. And so they said, you've obviously nicked it off your, off your trot. He gets called in because of his intelligence and because of his lack of morals into this, uh, the titular bad company run by Frank Langella and with Ellen Barkin as his secondhand woman. Um, and right-hand woman, sorry, not secondhand woman. God, that sounds like a Bon Jovi song, doesn't it? Secondhand woman! Um, and yeah, so they, 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 he gets taken in and they bring him on and they, they effectively just blackmail and bribe people um, outside the government and try to put themselves up as a front as a decent company. Mm. We find we find out pretty quickly that Lawrence Fishman is just trying to get his job back at the CIA, and he's meeting up with people he knows at the CIA, and, and you think, oh, he's obviously doing this then to, um, to get, uh, he's not actually in with them, doesn't agree with what they're doing. He's just basically an inside man. But the problem with the film is that there's no one likable in it, which sometimes isn't an issue but in this you just think i'm not really rooting for anyone and so mm. the further the when the further he gets into it and the fact that he's effectively a, a moral blank slate and willing to pretty much do anything it, and and she, and ellen barkin is trying to overthrow frank langella who runs a company full of awful people and it's filmed in this like it's almost like an underground bunker like from the soviet block the office it's, it's really just like miserable and gray um and whilst there's a touch of noir in all the, th- the smoking and the drinking and there's like a pretty intense sex scene in the middle of it, 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 it all kind of feels a bit empty because you're not rooting for anyone. You don't really care mm. what happens because everyone is in it for themselves and pretty, pretty one dimensional because everyone is just really self-centered. Everyone is effectively the same character. So um, it doesn't really matter how it's going to kind of play out. Yeah, whether he gets his way or gets back in the CIA or Frank Langella, Langella sorry, finds out what's going on or Ellen Barkin kills them both. You think you're all just like really unpleasant people doing unpleasant things. So I don't I don't care. Um, it's nicely filmed and the soundtrack is all jazzy and there's lots of smoking and a couple, yeah. couple of shagging scenes. But yeah, it's just just a really forgettable 90s thriller that's. And there's a bit of a full-on like incest sex scene at the start as well. Like, um, okay. that's really, uh, it's just, it's the way it's presented and the way the girl especially reacts is is quite mm. bizarre. And you think, God, even this one sub character that is that is is brought in uh, like reacts to this incest situation that she's personally involved in as like a kind of jokey throwaway thing, as if it doesn't really matter. And so there's like truly no one good in the film. I always think with films like that where it's so unrelentingly bleak uh, and cynical in its presentation of literally everybody. I always think the writer must've been going through a hard time. <laughs> like, cause if you, you think of something like taxi driver, which was famously written in a alcoholic haze by Paul Schrader in like two weeks. And of course that, that's kind of the gold standard for just like unpleasant people everywhere. And, um, and that makes sense that he was in such a kind of like cynical funk that it it, it makes sense for it to be so bleak. But cynical funk is at... my favorite genre of music, by the way. <laughs> I think it like if the film's good enough, you can get away with it. But sometimes it just comes across as quite disingenuous, you know, because it, if every character is utterly self-serving and utterly uh, cynical, then it's like, well, 
okay, this is, you know, I can see what you're pushing for, but it's not true. Like, that is not how human beings are. The, so the unless, you're... unless you're going to have, um, unless it's going to be some broader satire, I look at you, Scarface, then you, it's, I'm not going to believe it. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't seem believable at all. It, it's it's kind of misleading by the the very cover. If you look at the poster as well, uh, Bad Company, 1995 on Wikipedia, the cover is sort of a drained, a monochrome with uh, close-ups of Lawrence Fishburne and Ellen Barkin's face, and it's obviously black and white because of their skin tone. And and even that gives you a you think, oh, is it is it meant to be you know one side and then the other? But it's not that at all. It's just grey. <laughs> unrelenting gray um bad company also... 1972 film bad company 2002 film bad company 1995 film so this is yeah. a double not that one yeah this is bad company not that one or that one <laughs> um and now i want you to type in guilty as sin which is a 1993 film i'm going to really briefly talk about uh, and it stars Rebecca de Mornay and Don Johnson. But if you look at the cover on Wikipedia, and I told you that it is, in fact, Sharon Stone and Tim Robbins, you'd believe <laughs> me, wouldn't even, you? Even at a push, Michael Douglas, perhaps. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, in. I know what you mean. I started watching this film. I haven't finished it yet because it seemed to require a, more concentration than I could muster with a baby. <laughs> um. I, I won't give anything away. All I all I wanted to say, if you're going to watch it, all I will say about okay. this film is, uh, we'll probably talk about it in the future. But Rebecca De Mornay is is a is an attorney, and Don Johnson is effectively a gigolo, a really well dressed, handsome gigolo. Um, the reason that I really thought this film just didn't really work, apart from the fact that it, it just feels like a TV movie from the late '80s, is just because. Don Johnson is not seductive at all in the in the role. He's just really, really smug and smarmy. Um, and I just don't believe that he would have the sort of apart from the ridiculous plot, the wherewithal to to seduce these women. He's just a really one dimensional womanizer. And I, it's mm. if it needed to be, he needed to be more on form for me to believe that. Yeah, actually, you I can understand how you would you wangle your way into these women's lives beyond the fact that you're just really hot and also it relies mm. on plot twists that just rely on people saying things um and backing him up when they have absolutely no reason to do it it's just bad writing his uh, his like irresistible charm is quite a key plot point as as far as i'm aware so far because yeah. because the thing is she really shouldn't be taking the case and yeah and she's really reluctant about it. And yet she's mysteriously drawn to him because he's so hot. But it's like he I from what I've seen, he just seems really temperamental. Actually, yeah, he's right. not. It's really weird. Like when you see them as the plot unfolds, you just think he just it's like a really unpleasant man who is good looking. <laughs> but he hasn't. it's not like he's really seductive. I'm, I don't get that no. from looking at this film, which is a surprise because it's Don Johnson. So they really just had some work to do to make him not sexy and charming. Oh, don't get me wrong. If I was his attorney, I'd have my knickers off over the desk before he'd shut the door behind him. But, you know, in a film, you expect more. <laughs> Do you expect better from Rebecca Damone? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, yeah, the, the, the last... the I can do two more super quick ones, if that's okay, to get them out of yeah. the way. Gone in 60 seconds. Um, 
It's just not a film that's aged well, quite frankly. Uh, and it, it's oddly boring um, because it's one of those films that I was thinking, this is obviously made for car aficionados, people who like really are hips deep into cars. But it the cars aren't... It's not sexy, if you know what I mean. Like it, they, they keep on, yeah. they give the the cars girls names and so on, but it's it. They get this crew together to nick fifty cars in one night, and you you don't get the sense they've nicked fifty. You, you it looks like they've nicked about seven or eight. Um, there's too many people, so it just it's just like really sort of a blunderbuss approach to to just scenes here and there. There's a couple of funny moments, um, but you just you just think this this is quite a weirdly bland film and and it doesn't there's no real you know smooth set pieces until the end and even then they're not amazingly well shot you know you don't i didn't really get a sense of like oh this is a cool car chase there was one with obviously del rolindo that i enjoyed but i don't know it just um it seemed to be something of nothing i found it really sort of just like a puff of steam really i I watched it and it finished and i just thought I don't even know if I how often did I see it once as a kid? Did I see it twenty times? Am mm. I ever going to watch it again? So <laughs> it's just it's a conundrum, so many it? questions. Yeah, so, same writer I mean, as like, Conair. <laughs> there's, there's the problem. Yeah, it, considering it's supposed to be this sexy um, celebration of automobiles, it, it actually just feels pretty conservative in how it's made. It's just just feels like it's put together by a committee so meh didn't really care about that is it i remember being quite flashy looking oh like yeah it's very in a really in a very early 2000s way oh the music my god it's constant pilled up percy and the bogs music but it's 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 kind of there to pump the energy up uh, you know of of people just hanging around yeah it never does somehow robert duval's warehouse yeah um and the last one, like two minutes, is I watch Raw Deal again, which I still maintain is one of Arnie's best films. I think it's a really sort of dirty 80s like action movie that's just got some amazing lines of dialogue and a hugely miscast Arnie. Fantastic. The bit where he drives into the quarry at the end. Dead. Dead. And dead. He would be dead. He's literally relying on this like metal frame around him to protect him from bullets. Yeah, amazing. And metal from metal from, and he's not wearing a seatbelt. Um, yeah, it's. I just think it's a really good film. It's one I watch all the time. And Robert Darby's in it. <laughs> I, I don't know what else you need to know about it. I think it's one of Arnie's best. And obviously, <laughs> I didn't realize this, but the I've forgotten his name now. But um, the guy in it who played uh, was it uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker in the seventies, Darren McGavin. Um, right. He plays Harry, his partner in this. So that was okay. something I didn't know before. Yeah, that's definitely on my list. That's on Disney Plus as well, isn't it? You must have seen Raw Deal before. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's been a while, though. It's, it's, I'm definitely up for a... I've probably oh, watched but... Commander about three times since I last saw Raw Deal. So. Um, Will Patton as well is... forgot to say, Gone in 60 Seconds. Will Patton, obviously fancy him. Christopher Eccleston's hair in Gone in 60 <laughs> Seconds it looks like he's just left university and he's trying to grow it long and they've caught him in the mid-period when he can't quite put it behind his ears but he, he's not going to give up. It's awful. Um, Del Rolindo's in it, good. And, and Vinnie Jones does a monologue at the end which is supposed to be really clever and funny. It's not <sighs> it's really badly written. Jeez. So. Vinnie Jones. <laughs> oh. Um... Right. Let's move on to The Happening. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. 
It's because I don't know why I watched this. Why am I trying to justify it? Right. So they're <laughs> happening. I think it's because I just watched Signs, which I won't get to this week, but I will go through next time. But the happening is uh, an M Night Shyamalan film from 2008, and I I think of it as the end of his kind of first arc um, of like twisty thrillers. Because he basically had a pretty spotless run. Then he made Lady in the Water and everyone thought, ooh, you know, that could be an anomaly because it was so different to his other films. But then he went and made The Happening, which seemed to be very much in his wheelhouse, like a kind of horror uh, thriller type thing. But it just turned out it was absolutely astonishing and not in a good way. So there, there are actually a couple of good early set pieces in this movie. Um, where basically these so there's something in the air right uh, around New York City which is where we initially are and these these construction workers suddenly start throwing themselves off a building killing themselves and splatting on the floor and it's quite it's quite a well done sequence where it's like they think first one's an accident and then so they realise that they're all just throwing themselves off splatting on the ground and there's another sequence where civilians in a traffic jam just get out and start shooting themselves in the head. And like the next person will go along and pick up the gun, shoot themselves. The next person will go along, pick up the gun, shoot themselves. So that's all pretty well done. It's pretty cool set pieces. And it's like, Ooh, what's going on? Well, we're never actually sure what's going on, but anyway, more on that later, but there's something in the air anyway. It's, it's around New York city. It's around Philadelphia. And I think it's possibly around the world. Not clear. Um, but it, there's something which is making people stop in their tracks, walk backwards a bit, and then kill themselves. Okay? <laughs> so, Mark Wahlberg, Zoe Deschanel, and John Leguizamo and his kid, they head out of the city to avoid whatever threat this is. They think it might be a terrorist attack initially. They're getting out of the city. Um, however, they Does anyone else have quick. that idea as well, to leave the city uh, by any chance? Just the odd, yeah, one or two. Although just they find... Well, <laughs> there's this whole thing about, right, everyone's got to get out of the city and it's this big emergency. And they go to the the train station and it's like, it's not that busy. It's all right. It's fine. They can walk around quietly. It's not like there's crowds of people. They just get out of the city. But the other thing is they catch on pretty quick, right, that this is not a terrorist attack. And the event is natural. It's something which is occurring in nature. So, of course, their first impulse is to leave the city and head into the deep countryside. Obviously, brilliant idea. So they get out to the countryside and then most of the horror in the second act is it's really just either described by characters or conveyed via telephone. There really isn't much going on there. The pacing is weirdly shambling, possibly because they're on foot for most of the film. So it's just them traipsing across fields and like getting scared of the wind blowing in the trees. About about 75 <laughs> percent of the dialogue is just supposition. So it's like, they'll say, they'll keep saying it's plants that are causing this weird effect on people, but then they'll run away from the wind. It's like, well, that's not the plants, is it? Why are you scared of the wind? If you just said it's a plant and then they find a radio and someone suggests it could be a nuclear leak. Um, So on the basis of that information, they then say, Oh, we, in that case, we need to get away from people. 
Why? Why would that mean that you have to get away from people? No, it's, it it's and what the other thing is, it's it's clear that whatever this thing is, it's not people attacking people. So it's just people killing themselves. It's not people attacking people. So why, in the space of a day, does society become so fractured? And why why do people become so distrustful of each other? Like it's some massive post-apocalyptic wasteland. And yeah, already. Yeah. But because the threat is so unclear, no one understands it. We don't understand it. It's really hard for the film to conjure fear. So it, and and this is why I think it may have worked possibly this film or it may have worked better if the tone was one of pure doom, then it might have had some sort of like weird existential creeping fear. But Shyamalan, he has this very idiosyncratic style of humor, which really doesn't work here at all because he's effectively underselling a very esoteric threat. Um, so, it, and, and it's, it's strange because it's got this kind of goofy humor a lot of the time, but, and yet it's much more violent than any of the other Shyamalan films. Like there's these lions just rip the arms off this dude and people are shooting themselves in the head and stuff. And apparently Shyamalan wanted to make a great B movie, which when I think of that, and around this time, I think of Frank Darabont making The Mist, say, which is a great B movie and absolutely nailed yeah. the balance of like humor and action and horror. But a B movie, it needs to have more energy. It needs to have more a quicker pacing. It needs far more likable leads and it needs a recognizable threat. And the fact is that Shyamalan already made that movie. He made Signs, which was a good B-movie that had all those things. So why would you need to make this? It's almost like he ran out of ideas. Or he dug an old script out of a drawer, which is probably more likely. Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel are not good actors anyway. And they are really not well matched at all. Because Mark Wahlberg overacts and Zoe Deschanel underacts. So they come together and it's like, whoa, these people are completely they, they should not be on screen together their character's relationship is strained they're in a relationship but it's it's strained but there are no stakes in it because because they're both young they don't have kids they're basically incompatible as a couple so who cares like i don't care if they stay together or not does it matter if they yeah, stay compared together to what's going on yeah, it seems like nothing really, and they, it 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 really tries to force this big emotional ending at the end, where they're like thinking back to the first date and stuff, and it's like, well, but for all we know, you might have been together for like three months or something. It's, I, it, there's nothing here. There's nothing. There are no stakes here. Apparently, Mark Wahlberg hated this film as well, which doesn't surprise me. And he made, to be fair to him, he made the point like. I'm not sure why they cast me as a science teacher. And <laughs> you can see that he's not really comfortable at, in that role as kind of a cere cerebral reluctant hero. Doesn't really fit him at all. Oh. So it's a bad movie. It's a very bad movie. It's a bafflingly bad movie, uh, and which I still can't. I've seen it twice now and I still can't work out even what Shyamalan was going for. Well, I remember you, the first time you watched it, you explained to me and just said how much you disliked it. And that put me off. And I, I'll watch Mark Wahlberg in an action film or in a comedy. 
but um, yeah, I that was you completely put me off this, and your reassessment isn't filled me with confidence. So I, no. I think I'll just leave it to be honest. No. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry, I uh, watched one hour photo um, with Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember liking this film a lot. I mean, I watched this when it first came out in two thousand two, and I've I've always in my head thought, yeah, I really liked that. Watching it again, I had a really different experience, but it made me like it more. So um, for those who aren't uh, familiar with it, it stars Robin Williams as a photo technician at a big, it's called Save Mart. It's a big Walmart thing um, back in the day when you had to take your pictures out to get developed and it's sort of on the cusp of digital cameras and so on. And he is friendly well they think he's friendly with the family played by con nielsen and michael vartan on their son uh, and he's been uh, developing their pictures for years and you know they they know him as sigh and have a chat with them whenever he comes in but we find out pretty quickly that he's actually obsessed with them and kind of fantasizes himself as uncle sigh um someone who was in the pictures he's got like a shrine to this family on his wall he just stares at them and sort of daydreams, imagining himself in their life, not in a not in a sexual way with a mother, but just as a because he's so lonely. We see he lives in just a really empty apartment, and he just spends his life staring at these pictures and just imagining he has a better, more inclusive life. And when I, it's it's a bit spoilertastic this, but it, it's 19 years old, so I don't feel too bad. But when I first watched this film. I, I really like Robin. I thought it was in my head like a almost a borderline horror. Um, there's one sequence in it that still mm-hmm. made me jump, and 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 I remember it as being really sort of creepy. But watching it now, I realize it's actually very sad. It's a very sad film and borderline almost a, a drama as opposed to a thriller because in these sorts of films, normally when, you know, there's someone who's obsessed with the family, it's because he wants to basically kill the dad and bonk the mum, isn't it? That's what it is. But <laughs> it's, it is the classic <laughs> Freudian plot. Yeah. <laughs> the classic stab and bonk. Um, yeah. So uh, it's, but this is, is different because he just wants just to be included in, in someone's life and for, to be noticed. And, and he's ultimately, although he goes about things in the, in the wrong way, he's, mostly harmless until obviously the final reel ramps up a little bit and even then he doesn't do what you think he's going to do um and i just watched when i watched the film and i think especially because of now that robin williams is is gone and you when you watch the film and it's performance in it this kind of sort of um you know this slightly dour just sad man who is socially awkward uh, has as we find out at the very end is the victim of child abuse himself and just wants friendship and inclusion and, and doesn't get that. And um, I, I, I found it a very sad and quite affecting film as opposed to what I thought it was in my head, which was just, Oh yeah, it's a cool thriller with Robin Williams. So I'm really glad I, I rewatched this. And I think there's the, the sequence at the end um, where um, he is sort of caught and when he's just explaining to the detective, you know, w- w- not why he does what he does, because he doesn't even really see it like that. Um, w- why he's in the situation he's in and why the things have happened as they do. Mm-hmm. It's just sad. And, 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 I, and I, I really appreciated that aspect of the film a lot more this time around. Um, mm-hmm. Mark Romanek, the director, didn't um, 
didn't do much. He was more known for his music videos. I think he did the Cochise for Audio Slave Good. And he's done a couple of movies, but not many. And it's a shame, really, because I, I do like this. It's it's very tight and it never gets rid- it, it, these films like i said you you wait for it to get ridiculous and it never feels like it does it feels like it sticks to its guns and is more of a character study than a you know bursting out into big set pieces at the end so yeah i really liked it and it's definitely everyone should watch it i yeah i've yet to see it i i do need to i think perhaps uh, is this going to be too sad? Because watching anything with Robin Williams, even if it's like Hook or something like that, is sad enough. Watching an actual sad film, like no, I, about it's, a desperately lonely man, it's nice to see him doing something like this. It, it, I didn't cry, and I, I don't. I avoid, as you know, I avoid upset in films because I will cry, and I don't like that. So I didn't cry. This I was just very thoughtful. I would say at the end of it, I, I actually sat through the credits just like thinking about it and obviously you can't you can't not think about robin williams it uh, as a person in this character mm. and yeah it didn't upset me but it, it uh, definitely had an impact had a double impact um <laughs> uh yeah well i am gonna watch it i think i'm just gonna have to yeah, brace definitely. myself on it yeah absolutely i i seem to remember one hour photo was the one it felt like a, a new a start of a new phase in Robin Williams' career. You get that sense. I'm trying to think of what he um, would have done before it because Jack was '96. I don't know. Was it? He would have done was, Goodwill, Flubber, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting was a bit of a watershed moment, but it was still had comedic elements to it. This was. This seemed very different. Oh no! This yeah. is a knockabout comedy. One hour photo. Oh yeah, it's like, oh, he's always the Pratt Falls laughed, canned laughter. No, it's <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking, no, yeah, because I don't know what he would have done. What Flubber was '99, and then yeah. I don't know what he did, 2000, 2001. Well, yeah, oh, so Good Will Hunting was '98. So it, yeah, I guess, and then one hour photo, and then he would have done Insomnia as well. So because before Insomnia, Rupert, he would have done Final Cut, wouldn't he? Which is effectively this film. But worse, and in the future, <laughs> with a needless love plot. Yeah, that was a weird one, wasn't it? Yeah, it had like some good elements, but my god, it was not overall a good film. Um, yes, okay. Um, where where is that available? One hour photo. Um, I actually made a note on this. I watched one hour photo on Disney Plus. Okay. Um. Right. Well, I'm coming to my final selection for this week. Well, 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 I've got three here, but I'll keep these as a treat for next time um, because okay. they're not they're not two minutes. So, um, oh, okay. I'll, but yeah, I'll, yeah. So we'll let this be the final one. Okay. Um, well, it's it's not exactly the most exhilarating <laughs> final one. Afraid. It is the day the earth stood still. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> uh, we really Which know we had another banger in this podcast, don't we? I don't know when it was made. 2008? Something like that. I think it was 2008. <laughs> the fact you're too lazy to even look at your notes. 2008. Yeah. Okay. It's on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> so many, like, middling action movies on Disney+. Plus. It's kind of a remake of the 1951 film, uh, which is also based on a, a sci-fi short story from the 40s. Um so the story is that it starts off with Keanu Reeves in the 1920s 
who's in the like these Indian mountains and he finds a ball of light, basically, a ball of alien light, um, touches it, kills him, boom, dead. <laughs> Film over. No. It cuts <laughs> to modern day and Jennifer Connolly is a scientist and she's dragged from her home in the middle of the night to help with this emergency incident. The government, these government agents come along and say, right, you need to come here because this is quite important. There's an asteroid approaching Earth. It's going towards New York City and it's going to hit within like an hour. Um, and they think, well, we can't do much. So we're just going to have to prepare for the aftermath. Turns out it's not an asteroid. It's a spaceship. And it's another of these big balls of light, basically, but a bigger version. An alien comes out and he's shot. He's captured and they take him back and they peel off his like outer shell and underneath they find Keanu Reeves. Um, <laughs> they say, take Keanu Reeves. Take Keep it, yeah. um, <laughs> The only point of reference. The 17-year-old yes. film. Um, <laughs> so now he, he seems to have an understanding of the English language and he's evolving very quickly. The government gets very suspicious. Obviously, Kathy Bates is the government official. Gets very suspicious, and they assume this is an invasion. So they're gonna they're gonna wipe him out, and they're gonna take out this big ball of light in New York City. Um, he escapes with the help of Jennifer Connelly's character because Jennifer Connelly thinks it's unfair to kill him. Um, so they kind of go on the run together, and she finds out his name is Klaatu. And um, he explains, Keanu Reeves, he explains that the aliens have arrived to save planet Earth, in fact. And she's like, oh, cool. And then he says, oh, yeah, but to do that, we need to destroy humanity. It's like, ah, oh, right. It's a bit of a well, There's the kicker, see, Keanu. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I've got good news and bad news. Like, All right, crack on with the good news first. Then. Um, yeah, so um, it's not that bad, this film. It's got pretty bad reviews, um, but I thought it was all right. It's um, so weirdly, it's the second basically chase movie starring Keanu Reeves I watched this week somehow. But I think this time the alien imposter part actually suits Keanu Reeves' acting style a bit better because he's meant to be quite flat anyway. So because he doesn't really show any emotion. Um, and Jennifer Connelly is well cast because she well, he has... doesn't even hold up the Amiga game at any point. Wow. I'll have a drink to that. <laughs> Yesterday's champagne. Mm. <laughs> Yesterday's great album. Champagne. I'm um, drinking yesterday's champagne. Another Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Jennifer Connelly, she has a kind of naturally quite compassionate face and it fits the part of someone who will basically be trying to persuade this alien that humans are actually quite nice and okay people. Um, she's also got um, a son from a previous relationship with her played by Jaden. Billy Connolly. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird bit of casting. I thought someone 40 years her senior. Um, yeah. So Yes. Uh, Jason Smith. Um, so it's like, it's kind of like you know their relationship is is going to show him the way, sort of thing. It's a really fast moving film, really fast moving film. Like within the first ten minutes, all that stuff about New York being under threat, um, all that stuff, it's all happened. It's a chase movie, really. Um, 
no, I I do enjoy, I do like the original a lot, and it, and it retains a lot of the positive tone of the original. Um, the original being directed by the great Robert Wise back in 1951. Robert Wise, who I always have to point out, has had such a good career because he directed so many different types of films. He did The Sound of Music. Uh, he did West Side Story. Okay, they're not very different because they're both musicals. But um, he did The Andromeda Strain, which is a great 70s sci-fi. He did Star Trek, the, Star Trek the movie, which is a great 70s sci-fi, whatever anyone thinks. He did The Haunting, great uh, 60s horror. So yeah, he was a real, he was a real dude. He's a real dude. Mm. Um, anyway, so yeah, so it does retain a lot of that positive tone of the original. It does also retain a lot of the very simplistic messages about human hubris and humility. And and I really mean they are simplistic. It feels all this talk of like, oh, what you've done to the planet, you know, you're just ruining everything. It feels even more preaching now. Um, now that we're more, you know, watching it now. We're so much more aware of our influence on the planet. It feels even more preachy now, you know, not quite Superman for preachy, but it's close. And um, I think it would have been, it feels less preachy in say 1951, because perhaps in a post-war world, the world needed a message like that a bit more anyway. So it, but it's, it's pretty well made. It's directed by Scott Derrickson, who is better known for like his horror work. He did Sinister. Yeah, I know that name. Oh, there we go. Yeah. That's it. Exorcism Sinister. of Emily Rose and Dr. Strange. He's a talented director, but he's not I mean, the script he's working with here. Isn't the best. It does. He does well with what is, I suppose what you'd regard as kind of, I suppose it's not really mid-budget now, but it's not mega, mega budget. I mean, there's a decent sense of like global scale. You get a lot of armies assembling and some kind of epic shootouts with aliens and some pretty convincing news reports. So he does his best, but the script is a bit, it's a bit on the nose, should we say. John Cleese turns up and he, I'm not joking, he must say about three lines in this film. And it's like, I don't know whether they needed a few takes or something, but it seems like every time he talks, it cuts to just a shot of him, like he's not even in the room with anyone else. Like, <laughs> I don't know whether they just got him to a separate studio or something to say his lines, but he is properly like reading these stupid lines because he's meant to be the intelligent British professor. And the, you know, the stuff he's saying is just, it's so dumb, the dialogue that, yeah, it doesn't. He doesn't really sell it, but I think that Jennifer Connelly, in particular, does sell it. So she elevates it marginally above the average. But it's all right. It's quite enjoyable. It's better than Chain Reaction. Yeah, this I remember this film getting like really bad reviews when it came out to the point that it, I'm I'm a big Keanu Reeves fan and it put me off it. I just thought, oh well, it just seems like a, like a boring sci-fi is a hard sell, especially to me. But it's fine. Um, it's fine, is it? Okay. Yeah, um, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't call it boring because it's too fast moving. I don't. It's not a particularly long film. It just cracks along. I think maybe, I, you know, it's one of those films that could have been really long and just pushed over two hours for no reason. But admirably, it, it does not go there. So it's fine. 
That's a solid 40 minute. Right, it's film of the week time. Um, mm. I, I, I was, as we've been going through, I, I, do you know, at the start of this, I, I thought it would probably be one hour photo, but then talking about out of time made me realize how much I enjoyed it. Mm. So I, I'm going to have, I don't often do it, um, but I'm going to have a, a doubler. And I, I think it's if you want to, if you want to feel good and have a laugh, it's out of time. Mm. And if you want to feel a bit sad and a bit sort of ponderous and thoughtful, it would be one hour photo. Okay. That would be my well, uh, my suggestions. I'm uh, I'm gonna go with Heather's because it f- completely flopped at the time, and it should be seen by more people. And it's weird. It's, w- it's weird that it flopped because although I've never seen Heather's, uh, I've always in my head been aware that it's really really well regarded. So I'm surprised it flopped because you know you've got Winona Ryder, Christian Slater. It's a big um. Yeah, well, it was almost it was. It was a very like counterculture type movie then because it was deliberately written as an antidote to like John Hughes type, um, <clears throat> very positive, um, very joyful, like high school comedies. Now, and it was the antidote to that, really. It's very, very s- cynical, but in a clever way, not in a just a just a nasty way. It's snarky, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny and satirical. So uh, I can, yeah, it's not for everybody, <laughs> I wouldn't say, but it's for us. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm not even going to bother with the new Arkansas because, quite frankly, I'm going to unfriend you on Friends Reunited if by next week you haven't done your Arkansas. Okay, you can delete me off MySpace as well. Oh, yeah, honestly, you're going to be gone. I can't think of any more. Wasn't there one before Friends Reunited? I don't know. I think Friends Reunited was the first one, wasn't it? The best best. one. (laughs) Still the best, still on there. Still trying to reunite. It's weird. No one's accepted my friend request. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, well, that was Kino Kingdom 35. I think we we rattled through a nice amount. And what felt different this time is that um, I actually enjoyed a few of the films that I watched. It wasn't just thinking. I realized I, I put I put up for the on on um on Spotify and all the podcast places last time, um like you know Brit watches Mortal Kombat and this is followed by a torrent of mediocrity and I'm thinking well you know Mortal Kombat wasn't exactly top tier stuff, so it was it was nice to see. That was just yeah, that was just the opening valve of mediocrity <laughs> before the flow came out. Um, um, yeah, so I've got, like I said, I've got three or four I'm going to talk about next time. Yeah. And I'm going to watch a few more films. Any Anything you've got on the pipeline? or is, I, is I've, just... Yeah, I've got a few more on the list that I didn't go through this week. So I, I'll, I'll talk about Signs, the Shyamalan film. And I will, um, what was the other one? Nomadland, the best picture winner. Mm-hmm. What's that? So I could talk about that. Um, yeah, so we've got a few already in the pipeline. And uh, before we end, just going to fill in the fact of the week, which is 80% of sunshine is tired. Thickening woman, yesterday champagne. You know I love you, baby, but you don't even know my name. A secondhand woman. Yesterday champagne You know we love me baby But you don't 